Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a ceremony last week, Cache Valley resident Jan Benson presented to the state of Utah the 45-star flag that flew over the United States Capitol when Utah became a state in 1896. That flag will be displayed on the first floor of the Capitol near the Hall of the Governors. In the second half of the program today, uh, Jan Benson will join us to talk about some of the history of that flag and what it has meant to his family. We begin the program, however, with Kurt Bester. He's a Utah-based composer and performer known for his Christmas concerts, his film and television scores, and his haunting musical Prayer for Peace, Prayer of the Children. He'll be leading performances of the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber in Logan. It'll be at Cash Arts uh, coming up on the uh, 20th and uh, 21st. Um, 21st and 22nd. Glad I checked that. Uh, he's joining us in the first half of the program to uh, talk about this production, about returning to live performances, lessons learned during the pandemic, and what the arts and gathering together mean to us. A conversation next with Kurt Bester. So uh, understand these performances of the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, I'll just quote from the press release. They're in celebration of the return to live performance to Utah stages. Uh, have you talked about that first? What, what, does that, what does that mean for you and for the fellow performers that, uh, that are involved here? Well, on a, on a base level, Tom, it means that uh, I'm making some money. Uh, but on a right. maybe uh, more of a spiritual level, it, it just means connecting uh, again as an artist. I had no idea when this pandemic began that my need to connect with the audience, and in a way the audience connecting with me, was such a needed thing. I don't know if everybody who's listening agrees, but I've talked to enough people to say that, wow, we had no idea how much we missed going to the movies or how much we missed going to the ballet or seeing music or, or whatever art expression. Um, that's the biggest surprise for me. And, and I, I mean, I'm glad for it, but uh, I really don't want to go through this again. <laughs> yeah, so you say it was a surprise. You didn't expect, I guess, to, to, for the void to be that big or that painful, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I... To be honest, and then maybe this is a little more personal than I thought I'd be getting, but, you know, every once in a while as an artist, you kind of think, uh, does, it, does what I do really matter? I mean, look, it's not supermarket uh, sales. It's not gas. It's not doctors. It's not, I'm not, and what I'm, if what I'm doing as an artist makes any difference, I, I, I always wanted to know that. And, and I think what I've concluded, we can certainly live without the arts, but it's not very nice. I think humanities, um, they make us human, and and, uh, living a year without that connection has been kind of stressful for me, much more than I thought. And I suppose, uh, well, tell me what you've been doing during the pandemic. I I went to your website here, and you you, you have a, a note to... To, to fans, I guess, uh, saying, hey, I'm working on sheet music, I'm doing this and that, and, and hoping for a return to live performance. Yeah, well, you know, as a creative person, you live your life creatively in lots of ways. So the minute that we started having our shutdown, I could see that I needed to be creative so I could be creative. So I thought, okay, people are at home. Um, I've got lots of sheet music people have been asking for, so I'll, uh, I'll start making those things available. That was one thing I did. And then I had a lot of people calling me and saying, look, we're doing a Zoom concert and we need someone to do tracks because we can't get an orchestra. 
that was a kind of a surprise thing, including uh, your own uh, Utah State uh, Music Department had me work with them on a big project last November, a couple of concerts. They couldn't get an orchestra, orchestra together, the American Festival Choir. Uh, so I had to mock that up and, you know, do it artificially. It turned out pretty great, but, you know, it wasn't like the real thing. So I, I guess I've been involved in all the things that I ever have, except for live performing, at, at, but at a kind of a, a snail's pace and with a lot more time than I really wanted to have with nothing going on. So it's been, you know, I mean, it's it's just strange. Well, that's all I can say. Do, does uh, I could uh, surmise that uh, live, you know, that there's an energy to live performance. Maybe that gets the creative juices flowing in other areas of your career. I don't know if that's the case. Well, you know, it's funny you, you bring that up. So we've been we've done our show at, at the Eccles, uh, the where we we premiered it, and then of course we're bringing it up to Logan. But uh, that first moment that we all gathered together, we all had to be tested, we've been inoculated. But that first moment we gathered on stage, there was an electricity among the singers and the musicians and the directors and so forth. There was just kind of this kind of like a, a reunion of your class after a few years went by. But then the next step was when we had dress rehearsal, then performing together added another element of goosebumps. But that first performance was just, it was tingly. It was, it was, I did not expect to feel that way. Um, the audience, there was a buzz that the applause felt different. It felt more excited. You could just tell that people were, genuinely happy um and I'm, I'm sure after a year of, of of some pessimism and and political upheaval and you know all kinds of stuff never mind the, the covid problem people just wanted to feel happy and that music did that for them uh so yeah it, it was a lot more i use the word tingly because that's a feeling i felt it was a lot more electric than than i even imagined so the producers here came to you to produce this, right? And so you get to, I guess, you selected the performers, reached out to them. What were those conversations like? Imagine that was a lot of excitement there. Hey, it's Kurt Bester. You want to come? <laughs> you want to come participate? I don't know what they were thinking about me calling, but you know, it, the, the the charge was interesting. So we we got money through the CARES Act that was earmarked by our legislature for the arts. And then they contacted Steve Boulay, of, of, who does a lot of those Broadway shows that come to, to Utah, who contacted me. And he said, we want to hire as many Utah musicians as we can. Uh, we want to put the stage crew to work, the musicians to work, get as many people. So that was, it started off with a really nice feeling. It would be, the idea was, look, we got this money, let's, let's give a stimulus to the arts. So I was happy to call my friends. And I, the ironic thing was normally when I called, they were going, oh, I'd love to, but I'm busy. I'd love to, but I'm busy. Uh, this time they didn't say I'm busy. <laughs> and so I didn't have a hard time convincing them. And then, of course, when you've got the songs of Andrew Lloyd Webber, which are, you know, kind of like the Beatles of Broadway. I mean, it's, you're, you're playing all these hits. And uh, so the singers just jumped at the chance. And, you know, they got paid. They have a, I mean, it, it was it was like Christmas morning for everybody. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, folks, at least the, the maybe first choice in some cases, wouldn't be available, right? And so now uh, you're starting yeah. from scratch, and so they are available. Um, so 
um, and kind of far flung, right? You got St. George, Idaho, you know, right. folks coming well, in from all over. But every everybody originally was from Utah. One of the girls moved up to Idaho. Oh, I see. I yeah. still consider Utah. Yes. <laughs> but but yeah, Nicole, uh, you know, grew up in in Utah and went to BYU. But uh, anyway, yeah, they're they're from far flung areas, but we have found a way. And I guess this is a, you know, we had lots of Zoom conversations. I even rehearsed with Lisa, uh, who lives in St. George, uh, through Zoom. But uh, technology allows me to send PDFs and MP3s to each of them. Um, I had determined that I wanted kind of a diverse group. So you've got Dallin Bayless, who really comes from the opera, Broadway, that kind of world where, the, where you have more of a classical sound to his voice. Lisa is the same. She won her Tony, I think, for uh, doing uh, a Broadway version of La Boheme. And uh, then I have on the other end, I've got Lexi Walker, kind of this up-and-coming kind of pop Broadway sound. David Osmond, who, like his uncle, you know, has that kind of pop sensibilities and the great smile. And then Nicole, who really uh, the least known of the, of the singers, but uh, equally as talented. Uh, she cut her teeth on a lot of the Broadway songs. So I had a real wide range of singers, which is what I wanted, because Andrew Lloyd Webber, I mean, he does, he, you would say Phantom of the Opera is kind of uh, like Puccini. I mean, it's, it's, it's really that kind of sound. But then he's got his old stuff, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which is kind of 70s, 80s rock, um, and then everything in between. So you kind of have to have singers that are able to uh, cross over. Uh, the the kind of fun part, though, is is I was able to get Dallin Bayless, who's known as kind of a classical singer, to sing Song of the King, which is the Elvis tune from Joseph and the Technicolor mm-hmm. Dreamcoat. And that was a nice surprise that he was able to get a little uh, hip thrusting in there mm-hmm. besides his classical chops. <laughs> yeah, people have to come and see that, yeah. Um, so in the press materials, they quote Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's uh, been an advocate mm-hmm. for reopening theaters. He owns several, I think. Um, and he, in August, he tweeted, just completed the Oxford COVID-19 vaccine trial. I'll do anything to get theaters large and small opening in actors and musicians uh, back to work. So the composer himself has, has been working to, to, to get live performances going again. And I would imagine, well, I, I know this for, the, for, for sure. We've been working with the London group, uh, the really useless group there, useful group. I can't remember the name of his production company. It's kind of a clever name. But we've been working with them directly. This this came down because Steve Boulay of Utah, um, um, you know, of the, the uh, New Space Productions, Broadway Across America, he knows those folks. So Lloyd Webber has known what we're doing and has put his – even, uh, you know – I won't give away too much, but he even starts the show out with a little personal note. He knows exactly what we're doing, and I think if it weren't for COVID, we might not have gotten permission to do the show. So thanks to his wanting to open it up, um, and he, they were very magnanimous and helpful, so we appreciate that. Tell us a little bit more about this production. It's, this is, I guess this is the hits. What, uh, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do people come and see and hear? Yeah, well, you know, like any of your listeners, think of your favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber song, and chances are it's in the show. We've, you know, I've already mentioned Phantom of the Opera. Uh, we're doing uh, songs from Aspects of Love, uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. But it is a concert, and I, and I will say that a delightful thing has happened. This, song, this show was performed um, about 10 years ago, I think, the last time. 
and they they would use costumes from the shows and some of the scenery. We opted to treat it more like a concert. We wanted people to to listen to the songs, close their eyes, and they can see the the Phantom of the Opera stage. They can see the chandelier, um, and it's really worked out nicely. Uh, rather than feeding them too much, we just have the dancers and the I'm sorry, the singers come on stage, and with just a little bit of blocking present the song as if it were a concert. Um, there's not a lot of banter. It's just start the show and say, wow, that's another hit. That's another hit. Oh, I love that one. I love that one. And um, after 90-plus minutes, uh, no intermission because of COVID. We can't have people mingling in the uh, foyer. Um, you, chances are you've heard your favorite uh, Lloyd Webber tune. I, I kind of like no intermission uh, myself. I just went to the opera uh, the tragedy of Carmen, yeah. and uh, you know, eighty minutes straight through, and uh, and just enjoy it. I guess the only reason that people like me like uh, intermissions not to rest, but to sell product. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> um, as long as people promise to go out and buy, uh, download our MP3s, then I'm fine with no intermission too. It certainly keeps the flow going. And, and I think people get their fill of what they want, but they don't get their the, kind of the spirit of the show disrupted by an intermission, uh, was an interesting thing. Um, it's, the songs are, are fun to play for me. I'm, I'm the musical director, so I'm sitting at the piano, conducting with one hand, playing with the other. We've got a small string group, a group of brass, woodwinds, percussion, two synthesizer players, um, and it's working out pretty nicely. Um, I, I, I definitely lose a little weight um, with all the stuff I have to do. I play accordion. I play harmonica, shakers, and a few things in the show. But uh, it's a nice ride. And all the musicians are really enjoying playing the music. So that's a good thing. So um, understand, you, you know, theaters are, you know, you have to ease back into things. So I'm guessing that these performances are not full capacity, masks on, spacing, that kind of thing. Right, right. That, that's right. And, and, and we've chosen to err on the side of caution. Uh, I know there are theaters in Utah and, and other places uh, um, that, that have gone to almost full capacity. Uh, my personal feeling um, is that that's a little, uh, perhaps a little soon. Uh, with as many people that are hesitant to get vaccinated. But uh, on stage, all of us have been vaccinated, and we also take swab tests every, every time we meet. So that's, that's you know, way more than you even need to, but we're doing it just to make sure that we're safe on stage. In the audience, people can sit together in their groups. There's family groups of six, four, two, um, but, you know, sitting there with a mask on, I mean, it is the Phantom of the Opera, so wearing a mask might be uh, in, in vogue. But <laughs> it's, it's the least we can do. But I'm just grateful that uh, we're able to get um, in increasing numbers into the, into the theater. I would imagine, looking ahead with my Christmas show and the end of the year, I would imagine by then we might be able to be full capacity. Who knows? I guess it depends on all of us. Uh, what about the performers? I, I was kind of mulling this in my mind as I was uh, watching the uh, attending the opera. Um, orchestra members had masks on, conductor mask on uh, in that performance, but uh, singers, no masks, for, I guess, for obvious reasons. Yeah, you know, we 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 chose to to get copious tests and make sure that everybody was vaccinated on stage. And but even then. 
the the Phantom and Christina, they at that moment in uh, uh, I think it's all I ask of you when you have that juicy kiss at the end. They don't bump, don't bump elbows, but they just kind of hold hands and look at each other. There is no mm-hmm. kissing. So we do have our standards. But um, we, we opted uh, after talking to medical people and, and uh, deciding that we were going to just get tested, 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 and be safe, that we would do that on stage. But we do have a limitation on the number of musicians. I would have liked to have had a larger size orchestra. But it, as it turns out, I've arranged it in such a way that it sounds like an orchestra. But we do have a smaller string group because of that. Our people don't have to wear masks on stage. If, you're on, if you've taken the test and you've gotten vaccinated, you can take your, your mask off. But the minute we leave the theater, we're masked up again, and we don't go out and chat with people. Uh, you know, it's just what we do in 2021. You're listening to Access Utime, Tom Williams. And we're talking with uh, Kurt Buster, Utah-based composer and performer. He's leading performances of the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber. That'll be happening in Logan at the Ellen Eccles Theater in downtown Logan, uh, Friday and Saturday, May 21st and 22nd. And you can uh, find out ticket information at cashearts.org. Just before we go to break, we received this email from Steve. He says, just to confirm, the UPR audience has big Andrew Lloyd Webber fans. And uh, he sends a photo of some sheet music. He says, this is just sheet music. Weber Recording Library is much larger. So thanks for that, uh, Steve. Uh, and before we go to break, you want to stay tuned. Uh, in the next segment of the uh, conversation, we'll get to talking about composing music. More following this break. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. This is Science by the Slice. In 1960, as the Cold War heated up, the U.S. Army launched Project Iceworm. The top-secret effort was aimed at building a network of mobile nuclear launch sites under the Greenland Ice Sheet. Hampered by blizzards and unstable ice conditions, the project, located at Camp Century, was canceled in 1966. A 1.3-kilometer-long ice core was extracted from the site and, until recently, was largely forgotten. USU geoscientist Tammy Rittenauer is among experts tapped to analyze the unusual sample, which is providing clues about the Earth's warming climate. Rittenauer says data from the sample reveals the Greenland ice sheet may be more sensitive to climate change than previously thought. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. In majority white neighborhoods of LA, federal loans help businesses stay afloat when the pandemic hit. The PPP loans have really, they, they saved us. But just a few miles away, many black business owners say they were forgotten. Yeah, we were left behind. We were left behind. How the PPP program failed communities of color. On the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Cache Valley resident Jan Benson. He recently presented to the state of Utah the 45-star flag that flew over the United States Capitol when Utah became a state in 1896. 
He'll join us to talk about some of the history of this flag and what it's meant to his family. Right now, we're talking with Kurt Bester. He's a Utah-based composer and performer, and he's leading performances of the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber. That's happening in Logan on Friday and Saturday, May 21st and 22nd. Ticket information for that for those performances at cashearts.org. Well, tell me about arranging Andrew Lloyd uh, Webber. Any, anything special sound out, or is it is like arranging other music? Well, no, no it's... It, 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 it would be like arranging other people. I mean, I look up for Spain, but um, having him alive and having him be aware of our production um, and knowing that I'm, I was given scores that were not exactly for our group. So I had to kind of adapt, but I wanted to keep the integrity of the songs. Um, Lloyd Webber is known for having copious moments where he just lets the orchestra play the melody. Um, I mean, I noticed that in the show. It's like the singers sing, and all of a sudden, they, it's almost operatic. Then you hear the orchestra play the melody. And I wanted to, you know, make sure that those sounded like people expect. So I didn't venture too far away like I normally do. If you come to any of my Christmas concerts or hear my arrangements I've done for people like Jenny Oaks Baker, I will venture quite widely from the original song. In this case, though, uh, this is about Andrew Lloyd Webber, not about Kurt Bester. So I had to make sure that I was uh, paying homage to it. It was a little uh, intimidating. I mean, he is royalty after all. I guess the only person that would might intimidate me more is if I was arranging John Williams or something, mm-hmm. uh, since he's somebody that I really have a close uh, creative connection with. But uh, I hope I can meet him personally. I have had a conversation through email with him, but I'll look forward to someday saying, uh, hey, what do you think of my arrangements of your stuff? And hopefully he'll, he'll be happy. Right. Well, tell me about John Williams, uh, your special affinity, I guess, connection there. I, well, I do, and I would say that most people who do what I do, film music, um, very few people would not like John Williams. Yes, he's, he's overdone, perhaps, not by himself, but by other people copying him. But, you know, he's just one of those guys that came out of the, um, your, your listeners are savvy enough to know maybe Eric Korngold, some of the early 20th century composers. Um, he kind of takes that, that approach to things. It's, it's accessible, even though you're listening to music from Star Wars. Well, in that case, you might be hearing a little influenced by a few other folks. But, but when you listen to John Williams' music, you never feel like you're listening to uh, like something really saccharine. He's got counter melodies, really clever orchestrations, and I think his music will live the, the test of time. Um, I don't know however you label it. I mean, he's a media composer, but I think he's made his statements. And I'm glad to see that he's still conducting. I looked at yesterday, just looked at his summer schedule, and he's got about eight concerts, you know, throughout the summer playing, playing the John Williams hits. Glad you mentioned Corn Gold. I'd, I'd, I'd like to take every opportunity I can to, to plug Corn Gold. <laughs> so urge people to go and, and, you know, YouTube and listen to some Corn Gold. Absolutely. His violin concerto uh, is not done enough, I think. And, but you'll, when you listen to Corn Gold, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear some influences into John Williams or, Leonard Bernstein, or Elmer Bernstein and some of the later composers that were influenced. And, of course, I was a big fan of Aaron Copland and, and some of the American uh, 20th century tonal composers. And those guys, you know, I listened to Barber and some of those composers, and I think, wow, that's a song waiting for a movie, you know? Yeah. 
Um, so, so John Williams, yeah. John Williams is, is and I had a chance to meet him during the Olympics in 2002. And it was kind of one of those, I'm not worthy moments. You know? Yeah, right. Oh, you met him. Yeah. Oh yes. And he, in, in, in Salt Lake. Yeah. Yeah. He was involved in the opening ceremonies. I was involved in the closing, but we both used the orchestra. So our paths met. And then he was very nice to me. I didn't, didn't, I, I had so many things I want to talk to him about, but I basically said, nice to meet you. I, I, I admire your work. That's about as feeble as I could get yeah, out. Right. <laughs> I've had a couple of experiences like that. And I, I've felt incredibly lame, you know, meeting my my hero. <laughs> try, meeting your mentors. Meeting mentor, yeah, just just try to you know stammer something out. Uh, so have you have you done movie scores, film scores? I have actually over the years. I've done you know, I, I, I probably over forty different film scores, um, mostly in a, in a full orchestra style. I mean, film scoring now is a little more textural. If you listen to the score for Joker or some of the recent movies, you know, I dare you to hum a melody. But um, it's just we're at a place in film scoring where it's a little more tonal, synthetic uh, combination of string effects and so forth. So I don't score that many now because I really don't want to spend my time doing sound effects. But um, I have over my career done many, many movies Around here, people will know uh, there was a fam- uh, group, uh, company called Feature Films for Families. They did uh, Rigoletto, Buttercream Gang, a bunch of shows like that, and they, those are all scored by me. Then I also had a chance to score a bunch of IMAX movies um, over the years, and uh, I enjoyed it, but uh, to be really honest, it's not for the faint of heart. You get three weeks maybe to do like 60 minutes of music, no sleep. The pay's gone way down, thanks to synthesizers and, and young composers. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of grateful that while I'll do one now and then, I don't have a steady diet of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hard to predict, but, uh, you know, say the, the time your Christmas concerts come around this year. Uh, obviously, the hope is, you know, full capacity, kind of back to normal. Is, is that what you're planning for? Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I live in uh, a part of Salt Lake City where we're a little more progressive in our thinking, so we're still wearing masks and taking our being cautious. But I do believe that uh, that the numbers are showing that uh, enough people will either have had COVID or people like me got vaccinated, and we might still have to be careful. There might not be a lot of hugging and kissing, uh, but I think by the time my Christmas show rolls around. I'll be around. I know we've already booked concerts, so hopefully that is a harbinger of things come. I'll be performing at St. George, uh, Park City. My big show has already been booked in Salt Lake City for the 12th through the 15th of December. So uh, who knows if things will be back to normal. Maybe everybody's going to be wearing Santa masks in the audience, but I think <laughs> we'll probably be full capacity. That seems to be the the uh, the way it looks. Yeah, that, that would... Hopefully that'll be the way it is, and that'll say good things about society in large if we're able to do that. Um, well, yeah. So atop this conversation, you, you you pivoted quickly to spiritual aspects of art, but you did mention something very important, and uh, the, the pandemic has has been very economically hard on, boy, a broad range of, of organizations and individuals in the arts community. It has. And, you know, I, I think it's going to take a while to to get us back to full um, health in that regard. 
Um, you know, we have, we rely, uh, not so much me, but the symphony and the ballet and the opera rely on people giving money, uh, donating. Uh, hopefully we can get full houses, but it's, it takes kind of a community to rally around the arts in general. With the economy down, not only are people not going to the theater, they're also not donating as much because they might have a harder time. So this is kind of a double-edged sword. What I'm hoping, though, um, and, and, and it's not too political, I guess, I'm hoping that the disparity between the uber-rich in our society and the middle class that's really hurting right now, I'm hoping that that, that disparity starts to change and that, the, that those that really haven't been affected by the uh, pandemic, except health-wise, will step up and, um, you know, donate uh, because we're going to need that. Like, the, like our legislature donated uh, or shunted money to us, um, I thought that spoke volumes about our legislature. And uh, I mean, I'm grateful for that. Of course, uh, during the pandemic, everybody's had to get really creative. Um, and as we move back toward a normal or maybe a new normal, are there lessons maybe that you've learned or, or seen or watched that innovations that maybe will outlive the pandemic that will incorporate? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I, I got really tired of seeing choirs singing in little Brady Bunch squares on my computer. I hope that doesn't last, but I, I have enjoyed seeing streaming concerts. I've enjoyed a group out of London called Bochus 8, which is a acapella group that does anything from madrigals to king singer arrangements. I, I, I never would be able to see them live since I live here, but I've now subscribed to them. So I think that live concerts streamed um, can be added to the mix, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a bit like when MTV showed up. It's a new way to enjoy, a different way to enjoy an art you already enjoy, not to supplant it, but to, to augment it. So I think, I think I've enjoyed more music that I never would have because I'm sitting at home and I'm streaming it. Uh, that, hopefully that will last. Um, sheet music sales have gone up quite a bit as people sit at home thinking, wow, I got a piano and I can't go out. Let me just take some piano lessons or play piano. Hopefully that'll uh, increase. But uh, truth be told, um, Hulu, watching concerts on TV, I, it's just not the same. You know, you went to the opera recently. Uh, there's a thrill that is that live communication. And um, I think this pandemic woke us back up. Maybe we took a little for granted. I don't think that's going to happen again. You, you think it woke us up? Well, I think yeah. when people were, were without it. Yeah, I think it, yeah. It, people said, wow, I had no idea what it was like to watch a movie in a theater. I, 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 I really want to go back. And, or, man, that feeling that I get when I listen to the symphony, I can turn my home stereo up to 11, but it's not the same. I still need to feel that human whatever it is that you feel when you're at a live concert. Uh, hopefully people will realize that they took it for granted, and now having a year without it, uh, I know that's been the case when they show up at our show. They, they go, wow, we had, we don't, now we know why we used to go to live shows. Right. Well, I've certainly felt that in many areas of my life, j j that connection. You take it for granted, right? And then when you don't absolutely, have it. Absolutely. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's the yin to the yang. This COVID thing is a terrible thing. But like I tell my 12-year-old, I said, you know, don't forget this. Write, a, write down your feelings. Make, 
remember what you missed and don't take things for granted. And that means visiting your friends more often, going to the concerts more often, doing the human things, not just feeding your face and, you know, paying for gas, but do the things that make us human, which are the humanities, among other things. How's your 12-year-old handled it? I wonder, you know, kids are pretty resilient, but um, I guess they have the same stresses that, that adults have been experiencing through this. Well, they certainly, they not, not only have their own stresses, they have the, they feel the parent's stress. And I've had to remind myself many times as I've been opining about people living in portions of the state that I call Nomaskistan. It's like, really, guys? You know, and then my daughter picks up on that. So I have to be careful. I've got to pay tribute, though, to her school. She goes to a private school called McGillis in Salt Lake City, and they have been super strict about things. Enough, though, that they've gone the whole year with only about half of the year where they went four days a week, but now they're full. They all wear masks. The teachers have all got vaccinated. The parents buy in, and we're, uh, we're a school that is a success story. So my daughter has had a really – she loves going to school, and, and, but she loves it even more this year. You're a performer who's had a composer, you know, um, you wore many different hats, had a, uh, to this point, very varied career. Uh, and that very variety, I'm sure, is satisfying. Uh, is, but is there something, a horizon you haven't uh, gone to yet that you'd like to? You know, uh, I can honestly say, and I'm sure there's things I haven't done, but I mean, I've, I've pretty well expressed myself musically in every genre and, and type. I haven't done a, I haven't done an original uh, opera, but I have performed with the opera, and they perform pieces of mine. I've done ballets, I've had symphonic pieces done, and then I've scored movie, etc. Um, I've even done Muzak back in the early days. <laughs> um, but I think what I what I would, as I kind of turn the corner into uh, the next generation of my life, I really want to do music not because I have to pay the bills, but because I just feel like. I feel like I want to I want to express myself in a certain way. Um, and right now, for example, I wrote a children's story called Harmon E and the Missing Key. And uh, I won't bore you with all the details, but it's a it's kind of a Peter and the Wolf kind of uh, story that I'm going to score and present. And it's going to make no money, but I just wanted to do it for my daughter, for people her age. And I want to do more of those type of things rather than just saying, yeah, sure, I'll do that arrangement for you. Yeah, I'll do that 60-second spot. I mean, it, it, I love all the music that I do, but sometimes I go, oh, I wish I didn't have to. I just want to write music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's important. By the way, I have to follow up. You've composed music? I did, back in this long time ago. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm man enough to admit it. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually... What, there was a Bonneville Productions, uh, which is, you, you remember, the radio business, was connected to KSL. But they also own a myriad of, of easy listening stations. And in the back of the day, it was Muzak. So I got called, and they said, hey, we want you to do, um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, I did two, two songs. I did uh, Norwegian Wood with a Muzak sound, and also um, Sweet Caroline by... Uh, Neil Diamond. And it just makes me laugh because when you're doing music, you're really doing kind of a parody. It's like I had to imagine myself in a supermarket or in an elevator. And uh, hopefully my music was better than 
the next guys. Uh, hopefully, there was a little bit of integrity to it, but <laughs> I took the check and then said, "Okay, I can. I, I don't have to do that anymore." <laughs> yeah, that must be interesting. Yeah, it's almost a parody in and of itself, right? But then you try to <laughs> you try not to go full well, parody, a, right? There's a sound to it. There's a sound to it that's like Velveeta cheese, and 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 that's what they wanted. They wanted that string Montavani string sound and. You know, I just had to listen to a couple of albums and go, okay, I'll do that. I would never really choose to do that, but I need to pay the mortgage. So there you go. I contributed to people <laughs> falling asleep in elevators. <laughs> Things you didn't know about Kurt Bester. Um, so finally, uh, of course, the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, um, continues. Um, and then uh, is it there an art next project? You'd like to tell us about uh, uh, something else? That's always the scary question. It's like my wife will say, so what are you going to do after this show? And, I, and I'm like, oh, that's right. i got to pay the bills. Now, I'm working on a new album for Jenny Oaks Baker, the uh, local violinist who does quite prolific. I haven't quite decided the subject matter. Um, I've got, uh, what else am I doing? I've got some concerts. I'm, I'm doing, I have a series I call Music in High Places. And uh, while it's a private concert, it's, I'm doing one at the top of Snowbird, up on the very top, about 10,000 feet on the top of the tram in the new building up there. And I, I've also booked a concert at Kayenta that's also music in high places. Uh, so it doesn't have to be high. It's just the, the symbolism is I'm doing music about lofty things, about amazing stories. Um, and it's a, kind of a series I'm putting together. So that's uh, I've booked a few of those concerts, and I'm anxious to, uh, to do those. So... And after that, I'm out of work. So if anybody's yeah. listening, you know, we'll compose for food. <laughs> Very good. Well, it's always a pleasure. Always fun to talk to you, Kurt Bester. Thank you so much. All right, man. Take care, and uh, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you at the theater. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. Right. You're listening to Access U. Tom Tom Williams. My conversation with Kurt Bester. Uh, he is leading performances of the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber. That's in Logan on Friday and Saturday, May 21st and 22nd. You can find out more at cacharts.org, cacharts.org. Find out more about Kurt Bester at his website, kurtbester.com. Coming up following the break, we'll be talking with Cache Valley resident Jan Benson. Uh, last week, he presented to the state of Utah the 45-star flag that flew over the United States Capitol when Utah became a state in 1896. We'll talk about what the uh, history of the flag is and what it's meant to his family. That's following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech, business, and startups, supporting causes that affect us all. Information about upcoming events and advertising in the magazine at siliconslopes.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, opens up about the past year in a personal one-on-one -on -one interview. 60 seconds could have meant potentially the difference between what we have right now and a Marshall state. That's next time on Latino USA. Tomorrow morning at 11 on UPR. I'm Jasmine Mesa, one of the bilingual reporters at Utah Public Radio. This year, we have been working on increasing the diversity of voices you hear on UPR, and that is where I come in. I produce news stories in Spanish each week, and right now I've been reporting a lot of COVID-19. 
but as things continue to open up, I will be reporting on community events and other resources. Tune in on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. to listen to my stories in Spanish and visit upr.org to read them in English. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a ceremony last week, uh, Cache Valley resident Jan Benson presented to the state of Utah the 45-star flag that flew over the United States Capitol when Utah became a state in 1896. That flag will be displayed on the first uh, floor of the Capitol building near the Hall of the Governors. And uh, in this part of the program, Jan Benson joins us to talk about some of the history of this flag and what it's meant to his family. You presented to the state of Utah a 45-star flag. So I guess the, that's where we start. Uh, what's the significance of the 45-star flag? This particular flag, uh, of course, represents uh, the state of Utah coming into the Union. Uh, we were the 45th state to be entered into the Union, and uh, this, uh, this flag has been in our family for about 60 years. Um, and uh, it does have a, a very interesting history and journey uh, And that's what I, uh, the, the governor wanted me to present that to the committee uh, to give the history and the documentation that we had to uh, authenticate it, because uh, it is a, a pretty, pretty significant 45-star flag. So. Ah, yeah. Uh, so I'll have you tell me a bit of that history. Uh, but I guess the first, um, I was doing a little reading on this, so... 1896, of course, right? Utah becomes a state, and so they add a star, becomes a 45-star flag, and then that lasted till I think, about 1908, when Oklahoma was admitted, and it became 46 stars. Um, so, yeah, tell, tell me a bit about the history of this particular flag. Well, um, in, in, uh, on January 4th, 1896, uh, President Grover Cleveland Uh, signed the proclamation uh, entering Utah into the Union, and he was kind of grumpy about it because uh, he was a Democrat and didn't want a Republican state. And so he uh, he was alone in his office with his secretary. He signed the proclamation. Then he let Go uh, Governor Wells in from Utah and gave him a pen and and kicked him out. And uh, so I <laughs> I, uh, I think it was kind of a Um, uh, different than most uh, most official, you know, document signings uh, because he was politically grumpy. I think, but anyway, uh, we became uh, uh, the 45th state. The next morning, uh, the flag we had, the first 45 star flag ever raised on uh, the nation's capital, the Center Dome, uh, the morning of of the fifth. Uh, Um, so it was the first flag raised, that, uh, you know, after Utah became a state. Uh, then the flag was, uh, whenever the flag was retired, we don't know how long it stayed there. Traditionally, you know, today it only goes up a day, and then they give those as gifts. But um, uh, we don't know how long this one. When it was retired, eventually, I think it was years later, uh, it was given to Senator Reed Smoot. Uh, a senator of Utah, and uh, he uh, subsequently, we don't know how long after, uh, I don't think it was very long, presented the flag to the Utah State Society, which was a lobbying group in Washington, D.C., a social group, and uh, promoted Utah, etc. 
And uh, they became the custodian of that first flag. And for years they held it. And uh, um, my father, Serge Nelson Benson, uh, in the 50s, uh, uh, was uh, selected as president of that organization. And for some time he served and used the flag quite frequently in his public speaking. He was very patriotic, and he talked about, uh, uh, you know, uh, serving our country and and uh, the wonders of uh, of Utah, etc. And so he he used the flag quite a bit. Uh, he he was on the Senate Finance Committee, the Tariff Commission. Uh, he was uh, Ways and Means Committee. He was a ghostwriter, uh, very well known and loved on Capitol Hill. He was a Cache Valley boy, by the way, and uh, he went out and got his law degree from George Washington University and worked on Capitol Hill. Anyway, he became, uh, uh, at one point, he retired from that position as president of that society, and as a gesture by the members, they presented him with the flag because he had been using it so much uh, good that he, uh, he continued to use it even after he was released as president because it, uh, they had given it to him, and I was privileged to uh, accompany him on, on several of those uh, speaking engagements and using the flag. So it was in his possession. He passed away in 1994, uh, uh, and uh, so at that point the flag was uh, came into my possession and my five siblings. We kind of won it uh, jointly. And for years, we tried to to get this in a place where it, it does no good in my attic. So uh, we've been looking for an organization that would make it public, that would be able to display it and let everybody enjoy it, because it, it's owned by everyone, really. And uh, Governor Cox happened to be the man. Actually, we were... We were talking, uh, uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine, um, uh, Scott Christensen, who is in the uh, LDS Church Historical Department, and uh, we mentioned the flag, and he says, you know, my brother-in-law, Michael Maurer, works in the governor's office, Governor Cox. And uh, uh, he said he would call him, and he did, and one thing led to another, and um, I think Governor Cox, being the visionary man that he is, uh, he uh, he saw the value of this particular flag. They have several 45-star flags, but none of them claim to be the first flag, you know. And so he promised uh, to hang this in the Capitol, and uh, that pushed my button. And um, that's exactly what I wanted. And so we put the meeting together and signed the papers and... Uh, the state of Utah now owns the flag. It has finally come home. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Uh, it sounded like it, it meant a lot to your to your father. Absolutely, and therefore it meant a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, I uh, but I always felt a little bit of guilt because it really didn't belong to the Bensons. You know, it, it belongs to everyone. So that that's what motivated me and my brother Serge. Uh, to uh, to begin the the search for a, a more permanent home, a more appropriate home, I should say. Yeah, and now that they they're going to display it, I guess somewhere are they? Yes, they have told me that in several months they are now in the process of uh, 
uh, cleaning and uh, fixing the flag up and uh, preparing it to be mounted in a case full size. It's about six feet by nine feet. And uh, that will be mounted on uh, a wall uh, in the Capitol building. And uh, so it will be preserved. It'll have a nice plaque, etc. So uh, we're really pleased about that. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about the, this uh, 45 star flag? Um, I'll miss it. Um, it was fun owning it. It made me feel important, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm very, very relieved that it is in the right place and good people will be taking care of it. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful thing you've done. And now more people will be able to view this. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you very much uh, telling us some of the history of this flag. Well, you're welcome. I'm appreciating your uh, your interest. Our thanks to Jan Benson for joining us on the program and Kurt Bester, who joined us earlier on the program. We'll go out to today with uh, the latest episode of our segment, Bread and Butter. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Baking powder versus baking soda. Even experienced cooks sometimes get them confused. I've had a few bumbles. They look the same and they're both leavening agents used to help bake foods rise. Leaveners are a foundation of baking. Without the puff, a loaf of bread is a brick and a pancake turns into a tortilla. We require gases to be incorporated into the dough or batter to give things a soft texture and make them fluffy and appealing. It's not always air in there, by the way. More often, it's CO2. So what is the difference? It's all in the chemistry. Baking soda is a chemically basic powder that has to be used in tandem with an acid. An ingredient like lemon juice, vinegar, cream of tartar, honey, or buttermilk. Formerly known as sodium bicarbonate, baking soda is activated when combined with an acid and a liquid. Think about this science experiment you probably did in first grade, blending baking soda and white vinegar. The resulting reaction produces a plume of carbonic acid that fizzes up and out of the glass, bowl, or Play-Doh volcano, as the case may be. It's this same reaction that allows baked goods to rise and become light and fluffy. Carbonic acid has a flavor, a slight acidic lemony taste that you get in mineral water and carbonated beverages but it breaks down quickly during baking into water and carbon dioxide. Unlike baking soda, baking powder is a complete leavening agent, meaning it's a mix that contains both a base, sodium bicarbonate, the same as baking soda, and the acid needed to produce a rise. The acid in baking powder reacts with sodium bicarbonate and releases carbon dioxide once it's combined with a liquid. Baking powder also commonly includes cornstarch, added to prevent the acid base from activating during storage. Baking powder is typically used when a recipe doesn't call for any acidic ingredients. Baking powders can be fast-acting, slow-acting, or double-acting, depending on the acids they contain. Some react with liquid, while others react with heat. Double-acting powders usually contain two acids, one for the liquid and the other for the heat. When a recipe calls for baking powder, it's most likely referring to the double-acting kind.
For many recipes, an extended reaction was what you need, so the leavening doesn't happen all at once. If you think about something like muffins, that makes sense. You want a lifting of the batter during the initial reaction as you blend the dry baking powder with a liquid, and then a second response partway through the baking, when the heat activates round two and the gluten in the flour begins to stretch, cook, and hold its shape for a fluffy final product. Some recipes call for both baking soda and baking powder. Typically, this is because the recipe contains an acid that needs to be offset by the baking soda, but may not have enough of it to completely leaven the product. The question is, can you substitute them in a recipe? It isn't widely recommended, as chemistry can become dicey. But if you have to, you can make it work. Swapping baking powder for baking soda won't require additional ingredients, but baking soda is much stronger than powder, so you'll likely need around three times as much powder as you would soda to create the same rice. If your recipe calls for baking powder and all you have on hand is baking soda, it's even more tricky. Because baking soda lacks an acid, you have to make sure to add an acidic ingredient such as cream of tartar to activate the baking soda. So unless you get the proportion of base to acid just right, as it probably is written in your recipe, you might get a funky taste, either the bitterness of too much base or the sourness of too much acid. Although my creative side resists it, in this case, I suggest faithfully sticking to the recipe whenever you can, because baking is less middle school science experiment and more tried and true precision chemistry. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Idaho National Laboratory. INL has collaborations with every state in the U.S. More information about INL's connection with each state is available at inl.gov forward slash 50 states. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanity and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.